Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I'm Joe Matthew, and Kaylee Lines just got back. <laughs> well, it's from the crypto show, but also from the hearing, the SVB hearing today. You started your morning pretty early ahead of the hearing. You yeah. saw a lot of action outside the hearing room. You caught up with Elizabeth Warren, among other lawmakers. Uh, did this feel like a productive exercise while you were there? That's a really good question. I mean, I talked probably to eight or nine of these senators as they were exiting the hearing room. And so many of them referenced that they still have a lot more they need to learn mm-hmm. and kind of more work that needs to be done before any kind of real policy or regulatory uh, recommendation is made, which I do think is interesting considering these hearings are taking place two and a half weeks after the failure yeah, right. of Silicon Valley Bank. Already a significant amount of time has passed, and yet they're saying that they still have questions unanswered that need to be answered before they can form any real regulatory response because they don't want to act too quickly, mm-hmm. other than perhaps Elizabeth Warren. I was joined last hour by Congressman William Timmons, uh, who was on House financial services uh and it was uh it, it was a difficult conversation because he was really obsessed with woke bank mm. and i haven't heard that we were talking to rick davis about it after i haven't heard that for a couple of weeks but i guess you know that's still very much in the air he said it was a value statement that this bank uh was bringing in uh clients of similar values trying to chase esg and they all kind of brought themselves down. But we've never connected the dots on any of that. We've been talking to lawmakers for weeks on this and regulators. Yeah. And I'm not sure where the body's buried if that's the case. Yeah, well, it's on both kind of the ESG kind of investments that were made, which, to be fair, Silicon Valley did make some. The size relative to the entire deposit base and the number of assets that this bank actually had wasn't Mm -hmm. super substantial. But it also was about D&I initiatives and the makeup of its board. I would Mm -hmm. just note that 11 of the 12 board members at Silicon Valley Bank were indeed white. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, So there is a question of how woke "Quote unquote," this bank well, he uh, really about was that too. That that this was based on race and gender. I mean, we mm. went right down to the some of the very early talking points that we had heard. I don't know if that's a foreshadowing of the House hearing tomorrow, possibly. But a lot of these lawmakers have made up their minds clearly before they came into the room today, uh, and that's what I'd like to hear at least to start with uh, Nathan about Nathan Dean, senior government analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. I know you were plugged into this for for the balance of the hearing. Uh, Nathan, we're just trying to cut through the noise here and figure out what the heck happened. And lawmakers don't always make that very easy. No, and, and you know, I, I think Kaylee said it right. You know, today was our working hearing. Mm. You know, this was, you heard things like MRAs, MRIAs, CAMELS ratings. I mean, outside of me and my FinRake nerds, <laughs> there's not really many people that actually I talk need about that. a decoder that. ring. Yeah, exactly. So tomorrow is going to be much different. Tomorrow is going to be more of the show and the theater and so forth like mm. that. And to your point about the woke bank, you know, mm. we've heard this from Republicans over the last week or so that it, not just the bank itself, but also the San Francisco Federal Reserve has been focused on uh Things or at least their their view is is that the San Francisco Fed was vo- focused on ESG and DNI and not focused on bank capital. But ultimately, mm-hmm. I think what will happen here and where we're going to end up with is May first, the regulator is going to release their postpartum SVB report. You're going to see a lot of focus on the interest rate risk of Silicon Valley Bank and the lack of risk that was there. 
And there's going to be a lot of blame uh, associated both between the bank and the regulators. But also in that report, you're going to have some policy recommendations that come out. Mm-hmm. You know, Vice Chair Barr even said today, Basel yeah. III endgame. That's for the mm-hmm. big banks. Regional yeah. bank TLAC. It's called total loss absorbing capacity. This is long-term debt. We think that if you were to take the big bank TLAC rule and apply it to the, the, the banks that are about $250 billion in assets, you've got about $75 billion in long-term debt that they're going to have to uh, issue as a response to this. These things are already coming out. But then you have the, the new rules that are coming out <clears throat> in terms of capital and liquidity and so forth like that. Mm. There's a lot of work that they need to do. Well, it was so interesting because what I heard from Republicans and Democrats alike today is that regulators dropped the ball. I mean, that accusation was being made on both sides mm-hmm. of the aisle. And there, it raises the question of when we talk about that 2018 Dodd-Frank rollback, it left at the discretion of regulators what they would like to do, what how stringent tests they would like to impose on banks of between 100 and $250 billion in assets, which is where this whole question of is it about uh, regulatory enforcement or that existing regulation is needed. I tried to pose the question a few times. Was too much left at their discretion? Should this have been mandated? Didn't really get an answer, but could we see something like that? Yeah, so I think there's two things that happen here. One, uh, I think the regulators may have not felt confident enough to move forward with some of the actions they should have. For example, Vice Chair Barr said that they had a CAMELS rating of three. CAMELS rating is a rating that every bank gets. It's private. Nobody ever hears about it, but it's a scale of one to five. Three is a, is bad, but is it – I mean, we're talking about a bank that potentially brought down the entire financial system. I'd, I'd hate to see what a four or a five actually is. So, you know, if so, that's one thing is the regulators, I think, felt that they couldn't act or maybe they didn't feel comfortable to act. The other thing is, is that we heard a little bit in the testimony today, is Silicon Valley grew very quickly. Yeah. And when it passed the $100 billion threshold, it went into the next layer of supervision. Yeah. But it takes like a year or two to get the Fed examiners in place and so forth like that. And at one point, uh, uh, Vice Chair Barr even said that to get Silicon Valley Bank into the appropriate level of stress testing, Mm -hmm. it would be 2025 until they actually go through that stress test process. So I think when you see this report come out in May 1st, they're going to say that transition of a bank growing Mm -hmm. just let a lot of holes there. But, you know, stay tuned. We're going to we're going to there may be a lot more that we haven't seen yet. Can we for the benefit of our listeners, uh, the, the CAMELS rate? system. It's an acronym. <laughs> Capital, Adequacy, Assets, Management, Capability, Earnings, Liquidity, Sensitivity. How did I do? You, you did great. I couldn't okay. even pull that off the top of my head. But I, it, it comes in a letter at the beginning of the year. Yeah. And everybody in risk compliance at a bank is waiting for that letter. And if you get that one or two, then you feel that you've done a great job. I did not pull that off the top of my head, Kaylee. Yeah. Google is a beautiful, powerful yeah, thing, it is. isn't it? It sure is. Well, as we kind of talk about, Nathan, you talked about how this was a bank that grew incredibly quickly in terms of its size, but also took risks. The management of these banks is something that was uh, a lot of focus in these hearings, the mismanagement of them. They all want to speak to the executives who obviously uh, didn't testify today. Just from your point of view, where should the blame be appropriately cast? Is this a bank-to-bank specific issue, or is there something wider we can point to? So I think ultimately they're going to find out both. I mean, Vice Chair Barr even said at one point the interest rate risk at Silicon Valley Bank, and I'm paraphrasing here, wasn't grounded to reality. Mm. If the Fed knew that, then why didn't they act? And, you know, but, you know, Vice Chair Barr even said that he didn't know until February of 2023. So, you know, I think the question has to be asked, you know, where were the regulators in this? And I don't want to be, you know, too difficult on them. But maybe one of the solutions here is that, you know, banks have to go through stress tests. Why don't regulators go through stress tests? Mm-hmm. Almost like a war game scenario of here's a regional bank. It's going to mm-hmm. fail. Mm-hmm. What do you do in this type of situation? Because 
when a bank fails, you only have minutes to act because people, I mean, as we heard, $100 billion in deposits could have escaped in one day. I mean, it's just a difficult exercise, but I think ultimately there's going to be blame both on the bank and also uh, maybe some next steps of what the regulators could have done better. So you've got a recent event reaction here on your piece, Bloomberg Intelligence, higher capital rules loom for small regional banks. How much can regulators do on their own without the involvement of Congress? Yeah, so this goes back to this 2018 law, this bipartisan law, uh, yeah. you know, the short, it's S2155. 2155, it's nobody, like tattooed on our brains now. Nobody wants to call it a GERPA, that's the other, you know. Um, <laughs> Thank you. But, you know, and S2155 raised what was known as the systemically important financial in, uh, institution threshold from mm-hmm. $50 billion to $250 billion. And mm-hmm. that's where Silicon Valley Bank was loosened up in some of these regulatory requirements. Yeah. Now, folks like Senator Elizabeth Warren and Representative Katie Porter, they wanted that SIFI threshold to go back to $50 billion. I don't think it's going to happen this year. But what the Fed can do is they can retroactively go back and reapply enhanced prudential standards to a bank's $100 billion in assets and up. Vice Chair Byer even said that they were going to do this. But what is exactly enhanced prudential standards? It's higher capital requirements, tougher liquidity coverage ratios, uh, stress tests, and so forth like that. So if you are a bank between $100 billion and $250 billion, like Huntington Bank Corp, Key Corp, Regions, et cetera, you're going to follow your, find yourself in a similar regulatory regime that PNC, U.S. Trust, and uh, sorry, U.S. Bank and uh, Truist are facing at the moment. And as we've alluded to, this is within existing law. They have the ability to do this. Are we likely to see pushback, though, from the Republican side? Yeah, I, I, not just from the Republican side, but we even saw it from a little bit on the, the Democratic side, because Senator John Tester even said today that, you know, you know, this, you know, to your point earlier, a lot of this was a regulatory, not, not a regulatory issue, but a regulator issue. Mm-hmm. And so I think you'll see some pushback. But, you know, this has to come via a notice of proposed rulemaking from the Fed. The bigger concern I see at the moment is the Fed has said they want to do the Basel III endgame. They want to do the regional bank TLAC. They want to do stress testing. They have, you know, a climate change scenario analysis going on over there. Mm. Add to it this new postpartum capital requirement uh, rule. That's four or five major initiatives that they got to get done before the 2024 presidential elections. Because if they don't, then, you know, and the Republican wins, well, then you're going to have a changing of the guard. So, They have a lot of work to do, and I'm just, you know, they're going to have to jump out of the gate, like, right now if they want to get it done in time. You mentioned John Tester, his exchange here uh, with Michael Barr from that hearing on SVB. It looks to me like the regulators knew the problem, but nobody dropped the hammer. Uh, Thank you, Senator Tester. As I said, our our review is going to be uh, thorough. It's going to be open. And if we find problems like the ones that you just described, we're going to say it uh, clearly and, and describe what we think should and be done. When do you think it. that report will be done? And I'm way over time. Sorry. Yes. When do you think that report uh, will be done? May 1st. So May 1st, Kaylee, is going to be mm-hmm. like the day of days here in Washington. I just wonder how let down these lawmakers are going to be by what they read. Well, that's that's a very good question. And we know that a lot can happen in the span of a week. So mm-hmm. a lot also can happen in the span of four weeks. I mean, another question I have here is about the speed of the policy response, <laughs> given that we don't have the, you know, all clear, all good in the banking system just right. yet. There is still a massive question about what the future of First Republic, for example, uh, looks like. Do the paces just not match here, Nathan? No, I mean, there are just so many different points of views and people thinking they have different problems. I mean, to your point about earlier about the uh, the congressman representing the woke bank, but even things like, you know, there were there was very little discussion about Signature Bank today. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow, you'll probably see more about Signature Bank because there are a lot of folks in the crypto community 
community that are convinced that the closure of Signature Bank, and we heard statements from former Representative Barney Frank on this, yeah. mm-hmm. that the closure of Signature Bank was a way of the feds essentially saying, get out of the crypto business. Huh. Choke point again. Exactly. Yeah. Operation Choke Point 2.0 is what they say on, tr- on Twitter. So, uh, you know, so I, I think tomorrow you're going to see a lot more in terms of the Signature Bank side. Some repeat questions of today, but, uh, you know, Kaylee, to your point earlier, there are between the Senate Banking Committee and the House Financial Services Committee about 75, 80 policymakers, and they have 75 and 80 different points of view, things that they're focused on and so forth. So, you know, congressionally, I'm not sure there's actually anywhere that they can play it at the moment. Is the House just more friendly to crypto? Is that why? No, 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 not at all. It's just that, I mean, the House has more uh, crypto advocates in it. Yeah, so uh, and, that's basically what, what we're saying. But it would also have more stringent uh, 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 opponents as well. You know, crypto, for what we believe, is not so much a partisan issue, but more of a generational issue. Hmm. But I think that there are members on the House Financial Services Committee on the Republican side that are more willing to use their five minutes to talk about crypto than you know what we saw today. Um, on the note of crypto, I spoke with Senator Cynthia Lummis, who, of course, is planning on reintroducing uh, bipartisan legislation with Senator uh, Gillibrand as well in regard to crypto and just asked her, you know, about access to the banking system and the safety. And she basically said that there should be you should feel safer in regard to these crypto assets if regulation was actually put into place. And I just wonder how these bank failures sets back that wider effort to set some rules of the road for this industry here. Oh, it, it absolutely does. Because as you know, I mean, at the end of last year with FTX, there was a lot of focus on crypto. I mean, we saw this, this the Senate Ag Bill, the Digital Commodity Consumers Protection Act, have some momentum. FTX sort of, the FTX failure sort of took away some of that momentum. And coming into 2023, that momentum somewhat came back, but now there's this shiny object up in the sky called Silicon Valley Bank, and every policymaker is looking at that object, and they're not looking at crypto. And what I was actually talking to a senior Republican this week about it, and the problem for crypto at the moment is there's two major roadblocks. One, you have Silicon Valley Bank, and this is in the, the banking and the House Financial Services Committees, and then over in the agricultural committees, you have the Farm Bill. And it's going to take the ag committees a year to get through the Farm Bill, and those two major roadblocks are going to mean the policymakers spend less time on crypto, and that's not good hmm. for them. We haven't even started talking about the farm bill. <laughs> now, are you guys digging in on that later this year? That is a massive story yeah. that no one's talking about, but they will. No, absolutely. When it comes to food stamps and the, and the amount of money involved. And we have a lot of uh, we, our, our restaurants analysts and our uh, general grocery stores and so forth like that. I mean, there's a lot of exposure there to the markets, and we're going to be digging deeper into that this year. Great. I'm glad you came by, as always. We always learn from Nathan Dean, senior government analyst, Bloomberg Intelligence. Find him on the terminal. It's good to see you, sir. You're watching tomorrow so we don't have to? Absolutely. All right. Thank you for that, as always. <laughs> uh, Kaylee, you're going to go back down tomorrow. Is it worth it? Is it a similar conversation? Or, or what's your expectation when this goes to the House, other than well, I think more it crazy? Could, I think it could get spicier, uh, frankly, especially because we already have heard the testimony, right? We know yeah. what the regulators have said they would like to do going forward. We now have about a 24-hour period where these lawmakers can formulate a response and really push those buttons, should they so choose. Yeah, this is going to be interesting. We're going to keep watching. Of course, with Kaylee Lines, I'm Joe Matthew in Washington as we turn from banking to politics, not here, but Israel, although it all ties back to the White House. Stay with us next, a conversation with Aaron David Miller. This is Bloomberg. 
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. It's not getting any easier in Israel, where despite Benjamin Netanyahu's move yesterday to delay his overhaul of the judiciary, very controversial, leading to weeks of protests, they're back out on the streets today. A little sound from Israel this morning. As protesters throw fireworks at the police and a few skirmishes break out here, I'm Joe Matthew in Washington, joined by Kaylee Lines. Just a day after this story mm-hmm. broke, it was during our broadcast actually yesterday uh, that we learned of uh, the prime minister's decision here to delay the judicial plan. But Kaylee, there are a lot of questions about is he going to come back, for right. instance, as Joel Rubin suggested yesterday after Passover, to, to try to do the very same thing and what it will mean for uh, relations with the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, the operative word here is delay. Mm-hmm. This is not an abandonment of Correct. these plans entirely. It is a delay for how long, what that means, how this conversation shifts over the course of that delay still remain open questions. So there is still a level of, of intensity mm-hmm. uh, in Israel, certainly, but something that policymakers here in the U.S. Uh, have to consider as it is this very difficult to navigate at times relationship between yeah. the U.S. and and Israel and where it sits. It just got a lot more difficult, didn't it? Aaron David Miller joins us, Global Fellow at the Wilson Center, uh, for his take on this. Aaron, it's great to have you, and I appreciate the time. What are your thoughts on, on the timeline here for Benjamin Netanyahu to come back around with this plan? I think, frankly, and, you know, with the Oracle at Delphi, reading the best of Godin trails, probably couldn't answer that question. But I'll take a I'll take a run at it. I think it's highly unlikely that the prime minister, even though he has the votes, is going to revisit this thing in the way he tried to do it the first time. Okay, you've got hundreds of thousands of Israelis for 13 weeks out in the streets, which now uh, constitute a new element, frankly, in Israeli politics. And you have a very divided Israeli government with members of his own party, the Likud voicing real doubts about whether or not judicial reform in the way he envisions it can pass. So mm-hmm. I, 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 w- I would bet it's going to be um, quite a while before he tries this again. 
Well, and I wonder if it is about the judicial reform itself as much as it is about just Netanyahu's now stance. I just wonder how much how much credibility and sway he may have lost over the course of this episode. You know, it's a really good point. Um, he he's, he clearly is still the most influential political actor, and he, and he still heads up Likud, which is the most coherent, cohesive Israeli political party. But his image as the magician, as somebody who astutely reads the real estate correctly, political real estate, I think has taken a, 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 a really bad hit. And um, I suspect he's going to spend the next several weeks before the Knesset comes back into session after the mm-hmm. Passover recess on May 1, trying to figure out how to hold his coalition together and pay off those extremist ministers who um, agreed to stay with him, even though they really were determined to get this judicial reform passed. Yeah. Bloomberg is reporting that Israel's opposition leaders are preparing for talks will take place this evening uh, on on the, the paused plans here, the first meeting to be held in Jerusalem. What will come from it? I, you know, I know I've been around a lot of failed negotiations in my time, largely on the Arab-Israeli question. It's going to be really hard to broker a deal that somehow satisfies the needs of Netanyahu's coalition members and the protesters. And I think we have to pay attention to the fact that you have politicians like Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid, um, but you also have a new voice. And that new voice is hundreds of thousands of Israelis who basically saw the future of their country and their identity as a pluralistic, humanistic democracy Mm -hmm. uh, on the chopping block. And I think that the politicians are going to have to take that into account before they make any compromises uh, on this issue of judicial review. A lot of those protesters, frankly, wanted Netanyahu out, and they're going to want guarantees uh, that this won't happen again. So I I think you're entering a pre-fraught period here uh, where it's going to be really hard in the next several weeks to pull off anything that you and I would agree was a sustainable compromise. Well, you make an excellent point about the domestic voices here, but there also is the question of international voices of Israel's allies and the way that they are looking this. How complicated is this to navigate for the United States, for example? Well, I think the Biden administration, um, basically, if, if, if you ask the president, he probably would say, you know, I don't want to hear from Benjamin Netanyahu until after I'm reelected. And while Biden has a deep sense of, like President Clinton, uh, deeply pro-Israel, really embedded in his political and, and uh, personal DNA, there's an enormous amount of frustration on the part of the administration toward Netanyahu. They do not want to fight. And the fact that you had this TikTok even today over whether or not Prime Minister is going to be, come, uh, be coming to Washington, was he actually invited? The White House made clear that no official invitation has yet been issued. So I think that they, I, I describe the administration's approach as sort of passive aggressive. They really don't want to fight either on the Palestinian issue or on this judicial reform because they know the big issue out there, the only issue that could cause plunging financial markets and rising oil prices, the only issue that could actually create a regional confrontation is what to do about Iran's putative nuclear weapons, presumably, program uh, and its enrichment of uranium. That's the key issue for American interests in the region. And the administration knows that the Israelis, Benjamin Netanyahu, as long as he's prime minister, is a key ingredient in how that's going to play out. We heard uh, from John Kirby today at the White House, the spokesman for the National Security Council. He says what we want to see now and what we have said all along is for Israeli leaders to come to a compromise here 
that still supports the idea of checks and balances and that is sustainable as it comports with the consensus of the governed. If that is not reached, and there's every reason to believe that it may not be reached, uh, Aaron, what does that leave the White House to do with this government? Well, as I said, I think there are a lot of White House has a lot of equities here. I mean, in several weeks, presumably, the president's going to announce his reelection campaign. You've got intentions to seek, seek a second term. You've got a Republican Party that literally has become. I've worked for Republicans and Democrats. I've voted for Republicans and Democrats. But you have a Republican Party that essentially is the Israel right or wrong party. I doubt if there was one expression since this judicial reform bill was introduced in January of any House or Senate member on the Republican side criticizing this reform effort. So the president does not want to get crosswise on this issue. You also, we also have to take into consideration this really is, even though the U.S. has an equity here, an Israeli internal political matter. And then you have to factor in our own democratic backsliding. We're hardly a perfect democracy either. So I think the administration will push from the outside, encourage, coax, um, push the common and shared values that, that uh, they hope can, will continue to bind the U.S. and Israel. But it's hard for me to believe that the White House on this issue or even on the Palestinian issue wants a major fight with the Israelis right now. You know, presidents don't do this ordinarily, fighting with the Israelis. It's messy. It's awkward. It could be politically costly. And in this case, I'm not sure the White House is convinced, president convinced, that pushing really is going to change the internal dynamic in Israel. You ask me, why did Benjamin Netanyahu seek this pause, the Israelis did this. And the White mm -hmm. House has allowed the Israelis to do the walking and has allowed the Israelis to do the talking. And frankly, that, that's why things played out the way they did over the last mm -hmm. 48 hours. Great insights from Aaron David Miller. Aaron, thank you. Global Fellow at the Wilson Center with us on Bloomberg Sound On. Uh, indeed, Kaylee, that was the idea here, that it was not the, the pushing from the White House, that, that it was... The strike, it was the shutting down of the economy that moved Benjamin Netanyahu. And the hundreds of thousands of Israelis that moved jointly mm -hmm. uh, to protest this action, a real a real show of force on the on the part of the domestic populace that clearly Netanyahu and his coalition had had yeah. to heed. Again, delaying this right. planned judicial overhaul. Proven when they lifted the strike moments after his announcement <laughs> that he was delaying this, right? I mean, it's not really... Right. Uh, too confusing as to how this all worked out. Interesting to hear a day after from Aaron David Miller because this broke while we were on the air and we wanted to finish that conversation today. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. There's been no progress on the debt ceiling here, and now the Speaker of the House is sending a new letter to President Biden, Kevin McCarthy, remembering they sat down the 1st of February, and that was a big day. That was a big story the day that happened. McCarthy emerging from the West Wing to speak with reporters at the sticks about how optimistic he was something could be done, and, well, there hasn't been anything since then. Just a lot of salvos from one side of Pennsylvania Avenue to the other. Republicans are being very rational sensible. And, I, and if I look at everyone across this country, they think we should get in a wor- room and work this out, especially because of banking issue. That's the speaker at the Republican House retreat a couple weeks ago in Orlando. With us right now is Jack Fitzpatrick, congressional reporter with Bloomberg Government, who's got the beat on all of this here. Uh, Jack, it has been a long time since these two sat down, and I think I know what you're going to tell me. It won't happen until Republicans put up their budget for this year as joe biden has done is that the game we're playing something along those lines you know it's only gotten more confusing in the past week or so uh last week uh, we were told by the budget chairman in the house jody errington that they were actually going to do uh an offer sheet on Mm -hmm. the debt limit something a little bit uh narrower a little less detailed than a full budget resolution uh, and send that to the president first and then work on that that budget resolution with, you know, they have 10 year estimates on the budgetary effects of all these uh, policies. They'd get to that a little later. Um, they, I don't think that was vetted by Republican leadership. Arrington told us that. Then a, another one of our colleagues asked Kevin McCarthy about it. And all he had to say was, I don't know what he's talking about. So it is unclear if there is a debt limit offer coming. Um, clearly they are not about to put out a budget resolution for a while. They said they were going to move quickly on it. The Republicans did. Uh, they don't seem to be close on it now. Um, and, and there's still this attempt to get the president into negotiations before having to put out your own detailed plan. There are bullet points, there are suggestions. McCarthy had uh, four bullet points in this letter he released today, but there's still just this attempt to get the conversation going without holding Republicans to a very specific series of measures that they would support. We spoke with Elizabeth Warren a little bit earlier today. Uh, Bloomberg News caught up with her in a little gaggle she had in the hallway outside the banking hearing. Here's what she said about the debt limit. This is not about authorizing any new spending. This is about paying for the spending when the bill arrives. That's what the United States does. And failure to do that, an independent analysis has shown, is going to cost us jobs in this economy. We'll lose a million jobs in this economy and tip it into a recession if the Republicans follow through on their irresponsible threats to default on the debt, even for a short period of time. Okay, she said a lot there. Is it is it fair to say that Republicans are threatening uh, to go into defaults? Because I'm not hearing that at least not in those words from lawmakers, Jack. I realize that they want a budget agreement, but nobody's threatening to shut down the government. 
Well, uh, this this is where you get into some semantics, and it's a very political disagreement. Yeah. Um, one on the debt limit, it, it, the the uh, repercussions of failure would be much worse than a shutdown. Keep in mind, yes, of a course. failure to pay the bills that have already been incurred would, uh, you know, economists say that's essentially a default. Now, there's a Republican bill that would say, well, if we go past the debt limit, we yeah. would prioritize the payments so that bondholders, those kinds of people, mm-hmm. what you would call a quote unquote default, they would get paid. But then the government's own payments that are not for Treasury securities uh, would be they, they would be the first to be cut. Now, Democrats right. have said, one, they don't support that because essentially what you're doing is paying even foreign bondholders. You'd be paying China uh, <laughs> while disproportionately cutting, say, uh, you know, funding for the EPA, for environmental cleanup in your own agency. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the administration has said, Absolutely not. Don't do that. And even if you did prioritize your own failure on the debt limit, once you go past the debt limit, it would shake the markets. It would shake confidence in the government's ability to pay for this. So there's a disagreement as to whether a quote unquote default would necessarily occur. Uh, But really, (laughs) it is true that the the stakes here are very high because it is functionally a default. uh, and, And that's basically what we're talking about with the debt limit. Well, and of course, those of us you know who lived through the, uh, the fiscal cliff in eleven, Jack, remember that downgrade uh, preceded a default that never happened, and this thing is coming up a couple of months out. I don't, I mean, at some point, it's going to punch us in the face as we get into the summer here. The, the the downgrade is still a very real possibility, even if we do not stop paying our bills. Yes, uh, the the concerns about. You know, looking back to 2011, uh, looking at the credit downgrade, credit rating downgrade, or even just instilling uh, a panic in the markets if yeah. you get too close. Um, there, there's so much uncertainty in the rate of spending and revenues so that, you know, God forbid you get sort of close to what you think the deadline is and then some sort of catastrophe happens that cuts revenues or increases the need to spend and you can't do it before raising or suspending the debt limit. Uh, There's a lot of concern. Uh, All the Democrats I I talk to say we really, especially considering sort of the the nerves around banking right now, Mm -hmm. we need to do something quickly. Republicans also say we need to do something quickly. It's really just that both sides are blaming the other for not coming to the table because the Democrats want to see a more specific plan from the Republicans and the Republicans say that should not be necessary. They can have the conversation without a full budget. Uh, Reading Kevin McCarthy's letter, we have it, of course we have it here. He writes, with each passing day, I am incredibly concerned that you're putting an already fragile economy in jeopardy by insisting upon your extreme position of refusing to negotiate any meaningful changes to out-of-control spending alongside an increase in the debt limit. Isn't it an obvious response for the president, as we've been hearing, to say, well, then what's your plan? What do you want to cut? Where's your budget? Yeah, uh, that is the obvious response. You're going to continue to hear that. And I point out, look, there have been proposals and there are four bullet points. It's not the most detailed proposal, uh, but we can basically describe what the Republicans want. They want discretionary spending caps to limit to first cut and then limit the future growth of agency budgets. They want to pull back any unspent covid funds. Uh, They want stricter work requirements for things like SNAP benefits. Uh, And and then there's some other stuff like the energy bill that they want to do border stuff. Those are the basic parameters. I think the key point when you hear the president and other Democrats say, show me your plan, really they want to to see a vote. 
They want to dare the House Republicans to That's prove right. that they can actually, they have a functional majority. You can only lose four votes. If you lose five in the House, you don't have a then majority Then they can start anymore. a conversation. Jack, thank you. I wish we had more time, as always, with Jack Fitzpatrick, Bloomberg Government. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.